hear the most annoying sound in the world? Welcome to Rage Against the Mainstream Podcast, your full-spectrum source for all things music, insight, and opinion. My name is Bill, and I'm joined here with Connor and Steve. Yo. Yo. All right, so let's uh, do a recap of last week. We uh, discussed what would be the last good Metallica album by our opinions, and we had some agreements and we had some disagreements. So uh, have you guys encountered anything new or interesting in the previous week anything new you've listened to i just got fear of a black planet by public enemy i'm enjoying that that's awesome yeah and there's a uh an 80s german thrash band called exhumer they just released a new album it's actually it's really good exhumer exhumer 80s german thrash perfect the only thing i've encountered that was new or interesting to me was uh disobey the album from bad wolves the ones that did that cover yeah, of Zombie. Yeah, Zombie, yep. Yeah. By uh, Cranberries. Really, really, really good cover. All right, rest in peace, Dolores. Theo Riordan. Yeah. Honest to God, I think that might be one of my top five favorite covers. I don't know. I'm going to say uh, Painkiller by Death. Oh, well, that's, that's my number one. one. Actually, Black Diamond by The Replacements. That's a good really one. Good. That's yeah. my number two. Oh, that's For me, it's just probably something off Nirvana Unplugged. Probably <laughs> Plateau. It's a really good cover. Actually, Where Did You Sleep Last Night is an excellent rendition yeah. of Lead Belly's mm-hmm. original. I agree. I 100% No one agree. would argue with that, though. But anyway. So uh, let's get into this reoccurring segment that we have that's called On This Day in Music History. We'll start it off in 1956. Elvis Presley made his Las Vegas debut at the Frontier Hotel, which was a two-week residency. Shows were poorly received by the conservative, middle-aged hotel guests who described it as like a jug of corn liquor at a champagne party. That was in Newsweek. Amid his Vegas tenure, Presley, who had serious acting ambitions, signed a seven-year contract with Paramount Pictures. See, that's a little... I didn't realize Elvis was doing movies that early. I thought he didn't really start doing movies until, like, the late 60s, like, after washed up a little bit. Well, I forget what his first movie was. One was, like, Blue Hawaii or something. I think that might have been number one. Uh, Steve might check that out for us. Elvis Presley's first movie that he appeared in was 1956. His first leading role was in 1957. What movies were they? The first movie was Love Me Tender. That was in 1956. And then Loving You was 57. And then Jailhouse Rock came out the same year in 57. But his first leading role was Loving You in 1957. He was just rolling them out then. Oh, yeah, dude. Dude, he had movies in 56, 57, 58, 60, 60, 61, 61, 62, 62. Yeah. That's what musicians did back then. Yeah. Like even the Beatles, uh, they made... Fucking like five movies. Yeah, fucking. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, Elvis Presley makes movies and goes on to be an active figure in the pop culture scene, and then you know got Ronald Reagan becoming a president. You know, sometimes Elvis could have been next. Yeah, he could have. He been next. Hey, I would have voted for Elvis. There was a um, recent election. Hound Dog dropped in uh, July '56, so it makes sense that uh, by '57 he was starring in the movies. Yeah, I was. Um, I forget. I was listening to uh, Henry Rollins' podcast the other day. And uh, he was given. He was talking stories and whatever. And uh, he was talking about Elvis's bodyguard and the time they went to the White House. Speaking of Elvis being the president, well, when he met with Nixon, yeah. And um, they, <laughs> the Secret Service, had to make room for Elvis's bodyguards. They're like, the Secret Service was like, we're protecting the president, and uh, his bodyguards were like, yeah, well, we're protecting Elvis. <laughs> That's actually pretty. Like it just shows you how like how important and like how special Elvis Presley was. Elvis didn't like the Beatles. Not that I really do either, but I thought I heard a story where like when he went to the White House that him and Nixon were like talking about the Beatles and they were like mutually concerned about like their influence on America. Oh well. Yeah. <laughs> well the Beach Boys dropped the ball, I guess. The um, Beatles went and hung out with him, I know, at some point and they thought he was weird old pretty much like a weird old guy. Like they thought he was gonna be like friendly and down to party and he just kind of sat there and like drank and was like yeah this is all my stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah but all right we'll move on to 1966 10 years later we have wild thing by the british band the trogs was released in the u.s 
They reached number one on the Hot 100 chart and number two on the UK singles chart. Their version was ranked 257 on the Rolling Stone magazine list of 500 greatest songs of all time, which has become maybe a definitive list over since it's come out like maybe 10 years ago. Like oh, I see that referenced a lot. Um, and like you think about it, like number 257 on 500, like you over the span of music, you have 500 songs and this is literally 257. Like this shows, you know, how big of a song this really was and how important it was. Oh yeah. I always get that. And, uh, what is Louie Louie mixed up? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Similar guitar. But, uh, in 1969, three years later, uh, John Lennon legally changed his middle name from Winston to Ono. Oh, no. A little feminist move uh, from John there to uh, respect his wife, the famous Yoko Ono. Yeah, the Nancy Spongin for the Beatles. Also in 1969, The Who gave their first complete live performance of the rock opera Tommy at a show in Dalton, England. How do you feel oh, about well. Tommy? Not a fan. Really. Not a fan either. Yeah. Yeah. That the sound of it is like thin. It's it's yeah. really like not the who's. Well, it's really like best sounding. You compare to like Quadrophenia and, and who's pin, next? Pinball and... Wizards probably oh, the dumbest single they ever made. Yeah, dude. I, yeah. yeah. Like and it. Uh, and the vibes then, just weird. I, I don't know. I'm not a giant fan of the Who to begin with, but yeah, I, I'm not a giant fan. Like I really like a lot of their stuff, but uh, not a whole lot. Nine years later, Bob Marley and the Whalers in 1978 performed at the One Love Peace concert in Jamaica. It was Marley's first public appearance in Jamaica since being wounded in an assassination attempt a year and a half earlier. Oh, wow. Uh, near the end of the performance, uh, by Marley's request, Michael Manley, leader of then ruling People's National Party, and his political rival, Edward Sega, leader of the opposing Jamaica Labor Party, joined each other on stage and shook hands. That's actually really interesting. That's, yeah. That's cool. Like, I, I I heard stories about, like, the assassination attempt and how big this concert really was. And, you know, all of his guys were like, we strongly against you playing this. And Bob Marley was like, absolutely not. I'm doing this. Well, it's just interesting, too. I mean, you think of the strength that music holds. I mean, here he is performing after, you know, an assassination attempt, and he's bringing two political parties that are total rivals at this point, and they're shaking hands on stage. One love, like music. Yeah, I mean that's just, that's just shows to show you the strength of music sometimes. Well, yeah, and that was you know in the sixties and seventies and eighties that was like the peak of Cold War and decolonization and colonies of you know Europe and America and uh, Jamaica was probably going through some crazy shit at that time. I would guess. Yeah, I, I think we're. I forget if the Rodney riots were in Jamaica, but I'm sure it was pretty tumultuous. It wasn't just the. Uh, vacation getaway that it is today absolutely not in 1985 seven years later prince released the album around the world in a day it was his first release after purple rain which was obviously his massive album it was like purple rain <laughs> purple rain uh, yeah besides 1999 that is, yeah. that's an excellent <laughs> album um, i'm not much of a singer yeah it had raspberry beret on it which was a pretty big hit pop life um Continued Prince's, you know, musical expansion. It showed he wasn't going to just make a Purple Rain 2. You know, he kept mm -hmm. going in different directions. Well, yeah, both those songs reached top 10 on the Billboard charts. I mean, at Bray reaching at 2, and then Pop Life reaching at number 7. That's why Prince is God. Yeah, he can do it all, man. He's really fucking good at basketball, I'll tell you that. that Game. We, we learned from the Chappelle Show. Blouse. Um, Would you guys like some grapes? Why don't you wash your face in the waters of Lake Minnetonka? <laughs> <laughs> In 1989, four years later, Guns N' Roses released Patience uh, off of Lies, I think, right? Well, it was actually that dual-side album off of, uh, yeah, G&R Lies, because then the B-side was all off of uh, Live Like a Suicide. Yeah. Yeah, it was the B-side. It had, uh, you know, live tracks on it that included um, Reckless Life, uh, Move to the City, Nice Boys Don't Play Rock and Roll. Like, the first four tracks were all Live Like a Suicide, and then the last four were all those acoustic songs. Like patience and used to love her. Yeah, I love GNR Lies. GNR Lies is actually, I think, in my opinion, just um, that's probably definitely their second best because it's hard because I mean it's all live, like live songs and then a couple acoustics. Well, and use your illusion should have just been one album. Probably. Yeah, the one they could have even made it like eighteen or nineteen songs. 
but there's just maybe a couple too many filler tracks on that to, yeah. to yeah. have it like ju- really justify being a double release. They were just trying to cash in. Well, that was taken, Axel trying to cash in. Yeah, they had taken a long break after uh, Appetite and Lies and everything, and I'm sure they were uh, ready to chill. And when they got back, they were like, "All right, we'll just do two to space this out." Well, you have to think too. At that point in time, Guns N' Roses was one of the biggest bands around. Yeah, and they if were you one like of the biggest bands ever. One one thing I want to mention too, um, where it's just like the B side uh, was Rocket Queen. Rocket yeah. Queen's probably one of my favorite Guns N' Roses songs. Yeah, and then for those who ever you know didn't watch any like backstories of Guns N' Roses, so for a period of time, you know Guns N' Roses was going house to house, living with pretty much strippers and hookers, yeah. like house to house, which is interesting. And then, um, uh, what's the uh, why can't I think of the drummer's name at this point in time? Steven Adler. Steven Adler. Okay, so you know the part in Rocket Queen where it's the chick moaning. Yeah, that little bridge. Don't part? forget about Matt Sorum. Yeah, Matt Sorum was amazing too. Well, this is this is this though. Steven Adler. This is the story. I mean, it's pretty much proven at this point but that moaning part yeah that's Axl Rose fucking Steven Adler's girlfriend in the studio and then they recorded it ain't that some shit yeah because there's controversy a lot of these girls try to figure out who that song was actually written about Um, because again (laughs) they were going house to house and stuff but yeah that moaning part is all these fucking 80s California bands just love to fuck whoever well it's funny dude like uh, Welcome to the Jungle I mean it was like written obviously when Axl Rose first landed in California and he was like obviously like on this path to like start a band and do something with his life and there was like points in times where he was like living like weird dudes that try to like touch his penis apparently fun fact Axl Rose was born in Lafayette Indiana February 6th 1962 music news yeah, music news. So uh, some recent topics here. Silver Sun Pickups. Um, they're going to release their fifth album. Uh, Butch Vig producing it. It's uh, called Widow's Weeds. It'll be released on June 7th via their own new machine recordings label. Uh, states here, the alt-rock band previewed the LP with its pulsating string-fueled lead single, It Doesn't Matter Why. That's really uh, edgy. You know? I'll have to check it out. Um, it says, in a statement about Widow's Weeds, which follows 2015's Better Nature... Uh, the band detailed their studio chemistry with Vig. Uh, he's the fame producer, obviously, at Classic Records. I mean, he did Nevermind. He did Siamese Dream by uh, Smashing Pumpkins. He really listens to each band member, and he puts a great value on each individual and what they can add to the music, said bassist Nicky Moniger. Uh, it was very collaborative with him. He's such an easygoing person, and he put everybody at ease. I read. It was interesting. They kind of stole this album title, Widow's Weeds, from a Norwegian gothic metal band's debut album, Tristania, in 1998. Wow. Yeah, like they had the same exact album title, Widow's Weeds, That's in 1998. That's funny. I, I mean, how do you feel about Silver Song Pickups, like in that alt scene? Because, I mean, obviously they got Butch Vig, and they're saying they did Smashing Pumpkins, he did Nirvana. Yeah. And he's the perfect guy for Silver Song Pickups. Because, uh,. Carnivus, which uh, was their first album, that sounded came, like it should have been produced. It by really Bush should Vig. because I do yeah. like the song "Lazy Eye." Yeah, yeah no, that yeah. was like there's great songs yeah. on. I tuned. I love the first EP. I forget what it's called. I uh, pickle pickle or something, and uh, and then the second one is the album Carnivus. Really good, well thought out. Twinkle, Lazy Eye, yeah, bunch of other swoon. good ones, and Even then Swoon, swoon had substitution. Um, Panic Switch substitution. Yeah. yeah. And those were both good, and I kind of fell off with them after that a little bit, but it makes sense because the singles that they put out weren't really hitting me. I was just looking at their like production history here, and their 2012 and 2015 albums were produced by Jackknife Lee, who has kind of like a way more normal sound, more mid-range. Um, he did like R.E.M., Snow Patrol, U2, Weezer. Um, so they're they're since the out al- since Swoon, their second album, they've yeah. worked with this guy. Yeah, and now and I feel like they haven't really been in the spotlight too much in that period. Yeah, because I I mean if you think Carnivus, it nothing comes out. Up on my yeah. Radar. I mean, it comes out in 2006. I mean, you think about that sound that was coming out. When I first heard Lazy Eye, I really thought that was a song that came out in, like, maybe the later 90s. 
I didn't realize how much later that this band came out with this album. And it's funny because Lazy Eye, um, I recently got into again. Like it's one of those songs where you've heard it before, and then someone's like, "Yo, check out Silver Sun Pickups." I'm like, I don't even know who that is. And then they show you a song like, "Oh, that's them." That was Lazy Eye Mm -hmm. for me. And then I actually went back because I'm really into listening complete albums to really kind of get an idea of the band. And actually listen to Carnivus, and it's it's really good. It's actually a really good album. Yeah, yeah, I'm like really so Butch Vig doing this is exciting. Yeah, yeah I'll it, definitely check it out if they can channel the spirit from their first EP and their first two albums, and and with Butch Vig on board, they could they could be on track to make maybe their best album to date. Um, also, um, in music news, we got Neil Young, your boy Neil Young, the fucking man. Yeah, <laughs> Neil Young notes for this. <laughs> uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse are going to enter the studio in the near future and record their first new album since 2012, Psychedelic Which Bill. Which is amazing. That's yeah. a great album. Uh, Young confirmed the news on his uh, Neil Young Archives website in a response to a reader's letter asking about his future recording plans. Um, he quoted here, Crazy Horse is about to enter the studio with 11 new ones. That's what he, uh, he said there, Connor. 11 new ones for you, bud. Listen to Psychedelic Bill, Ramada, Ramada Inn. That's yeah. a great song. I think Walk Like a Ghost is on there, or what is it called? That's that's T. It also says Horse here, Horse. though, yeah, Neil Young uh, revived Crazy Horse last year for a series of low-profile theater gigs in California. Uh, they were the first performances by the group without guitarist Frank Poncho, Sam Pedro. Technically, besides Neil Young, he's the only non-original member of Crazy Horse. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's played on all their stuff except their first album. Their first guitarist, Danny Witten, died. He was like the subject of Needle and the Damage Done. What was I the believe. first time? Yeah, he's performed with them since 75. And, uh, okay, so then, yeah, 75. Danny Witten actually played on a lot of the Crazy Horse stuff, not just the first album. He played on the first one with, like, Down by the River, yeah. Cinnamon Girl, Cowgirl and Sand. Then he played on After Gold Rush. Yeah. And, and it's funny because uh, San Pedro also said here, um, he said, I'm 70, I'm retired now, and I want to stay home. As simple as that. I mean, the guy. Can't blame him. Yeah, I mean, you're 70. I mean, some guys just don't really want to be in the spotlight like that for too long. Crazy Horse were not living light lives either. This yeah, whole time. That's, yeah, and it's, it also says here, and then he's like, people say, um, "Isn't it sad you're not in Crazy Horse?" And he's like, "I don't think of it that way. I'll always be in Crazy Horse, um, as big a part as Crazy Horse as anyone that's ever been in it." I mean, that's clearly that's stated. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. true. I mean, it's like one of those things where you kind of just, you know, he's a huge part yeah, of Russ dude, never I mean, sleeps. You did what you did, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Crazy Horse's albums are like the golden uh, trove for uh, Neil Young albums because, you know, he doesn't always go with Crazy Horse. Like, Harvest wasn't Crazy Horse. Um, Tons of stuff he's done wasn't Crazy Horse. Harvest Moon. um, More. But he hasn't done, besides, he did two albums with them in 2012, Psychedelic Pill, and then Americana, which was an Americana album. And then before that, the last time was 03. So at this point, it is kind of a bit of an event when he goes in with to the studio with crazy horse to do like a rock album i feel like i need to get into neil young i feel like that's a market that i haven't tapped oh dude i feel like i'm missing out yeah you are he's insane like he doesn't like shred but he kind of actually fucking does yeah (laughs) i mean by what i've heard like you know like rocking in the free world i mean that's probably that's the extent of my neil young knowledge and it's it's funny why oh yeah old man and why you really know that like a hurricane may ask you this why you really know Neil Young? Is it because of Pearl Jam? No. You just like how did you? How did you? Because did you even listen to Crosby, Stills and Nash? No. Yeah. Actually, I'm not a giant fan of Crosby. Stills, okay, and but Nash. I'm saying like what? Like because I mean Neil Young is you one of those like, artists. Sweet, like, blue eyes. I I don't know what it is about that. I, I don't know. I just uh, I don't know if it's like the like the way things sounded back then. I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just not a giant fan of Crosby, oh, Stills and Nash. Man. Do you like uh, Buffalo Springfield? No. What? You don't like that song uh, for what it's worth? Not really. Well, you know what song I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not you giant. don't know Mr. Do you know Mr. Soul? I can't say I do. Yeah, you'll have to get into Neil oh, Young, man. Yeah, I feel like There's, I, yeah, I, feel like I should. There's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, you're missing out. 50 um, albums or so. Uh, also in news here, Hologram. Oh, here we go with the Hologram shows. Hologram. But I'm actually cool with this one. Uh, hologram of Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, so uh, Virtual Dio, yeah, the holy diver himself, uh, he's going to be touring as a hologram uh, in the United States this spring with a lineup of musicians that per- 
formed in the late Metal Legends uh, title of the band, Dio. Uh, it's called the Dio Returns. It's a track that will kick off May 31st. Uh, it starts off at Barbara B. Man performing Arts Hall in Fort Myers, Florida. It's going to wrap up June 29th at Brooklyn Bowl in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, it says here tickets are on sale April 12th, 10 a.m. local time. Uh, more dates are expected to be announced soon, and complete information is available on Dio's website. Uh, the tour will pair Ronnie James Dio hologram with his old Dio bandmates, guitarist Craig Cody, drummer Simon Wright, and keyboardist Scott Warren, as well as Dio Disciples uh, bassist uh, Bjorn Englund. Uh, it says the tour will also feature uh, guest vocalist Tim the Ripper Owens, uh, formerly a Judas Priest, as well as uh, doing with uh, Rising Force for Anglade. Yep. That's pretty cool. Um, he's worked with the, so yeah, obviously. And um, it says the new show will boast a 90-minute set list featuring music from uh, throughout Dio's career, from Rainbow to Black Sabbath to Dio. I mean, obviously Black Sabbath referencing like Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. Mm -hmm. um, it's also include hits like Holy Diver, King of Rock and Roll, and We Rock. So... It's funny because I talk about this all the time. I respect Dio on such a level because he was such an innovative musician for that sound of metal. And even when he joined uh, Sabbath, you know, like it, especially like you think when like Paul Rogers joined Queen yeah. for that period of time. Here's an excellent vocalist coming from an already established band being Bad Company and immediately he's getting shit because he's joining this band. Nobody's trying to be Freddie Mercury in that sense. The same way Dio was not trying to be Ozzy Osbourne. He had a voice. And the cool thing about it was when I saw him at Metal Masters with Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Testament, they toured as heaven and hell. Yeah. I thought that was super respectful. Because that's like, you know, that's how I felt when you see like Guns N' Roses touring as Guns N' Roses after Chinese Democracy came out. Mm -hmm. Like, what, at 36, you know, guitarists record on that album? Well, I feel like it's like the same deal as like when... Uh Sammy Hagar became the singer of Van Halen. Yeah, but th but Van Halen was still in the band. You know, like Ozzy yeah. Osbourne, like that was a group effort to be Black Sabbath. Like yeah. Van Halen, yeah. that's his name going when, into that. You know, in the eighties they were still called Black Sabbath, though, right? That's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They weren't called Heaven and Hell. No, right? but I'm yet. saying they that makes sense though, because they were. Yeah, they were still relevant. That's they what they were using the name, Osborne. obviously, and they're were, like, hey, we're Black Sabbath still. But then, yep. like, they got back with Ozzy a couple times for reunions and such. I yeah. believe. And after that, like, you you kind of recognize that like yeah Ozzy's the fucking man for Black Sabbath yeah and exactly after that you do fucking Heaven and Hell as the title what was even that's cooler though super respectful yeah yep. and especially when they toured uh, with Dio if you would notice when you would see these shows I mean you have Ronnie James Dio out and I'm seeing him in the 2000s you figure Dio's already got Holy Diver out um, you know, he's already doing like his own thing, even before all that when he was in Rainbow like that was another band mm -hmm. of that scene that wasn't as well known but he was established enough that when he went out and did Sabbath, I mean, they wanted him to be there. And then when he goes out and does a solo career, I mean, he's already made a name for himself. I mean, when you think Devil Horns, the first thing you think about is Dio. I mean, Black Sabbath, it, it was so cool because when you would see him live, Dio would not take the spotlight. I mean, it was so cool because he really respected that when he was going up there, he was going up there with a band that people are expecting to see some of their music. I mean, they obviously weren't playing Ozzy songs. They were really doing Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell stuff, which is there's some actually good... Uh, songs off there now how do we feel about the hologram like do i well, like do you feel like you're getting your money's worth by seeing a hologram okay so i i know well it depends on how much you're charging for that it's not going to be cheap probably because of the active because, musicians that are yeah there. exactly and that's the thing. I don't think Dio itself is a big enough band like for instance i don't think anybody who really listened to Dio as a commercial band in that sense would be able to say like, you know, I really like, you know, even Tim the Ripper Owens, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But I mean, could you really name all the musicians in Dio's band just like off the top of your head? No. You know what I mean? But you can and think about how many songs and that's another thing. Like there's not many Dio albums front to back that I could say like are gems, but then there's like four or five tracks in there. So then when you go mm -hmm. see a live set, I paid for the aesthetic to be able to see Ronnie James Dio in the flesh. The same way I paid to go see Bob Dylan, which was a miserable performance mm -hmm. back in 2008. You I saw Bob saw Dylan, but it was so cool being in his presence, just the idea, because, you know, think the time difference now. Now, I feel like with the whole hologram thing, if they yeah. were to do it like a walk-in open air or like Hellfest or something, it's yeah. like, oh, here's a set of Dio's hologram So like or being a part of something Yes, else. exactly. But I, I can't imagine, you know, selling tickets to somebody 
like where yeah. the headliner is a hologram. Yeah. Like, Holograms are going to be so easy to do soon that like you can walk into McDonald's and fucking a hologram of the whole McDonald's gang, like the hamburger. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's in there. Soon you'll be able you to 3D print you. yourself a cheeseburger on your printer, dude. Well, do yeah. we remember yeah. when yeah. NWA yeah. did it for Easy e They also did it yeah. for Tupac. Yeah. They did yeah. It for Tupac. Like Coachella or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, but see, I think that's it's cheesy. Like, but that's different, though. That's at a festival. Like, yeah, that, that's yeah. what we're talking included. about. Exactly. You know I mean? But here's the thing. I mean, there's certain artists, like, for instance, like I say it again, it's Dio, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Dio has just kind of a limited fan base in the sense that you really have to be into that type of music to really want to be at a Dio show. Exactly. Now, for instance, like a hologram of Tupac, I would probably pay money to see that just for the simple fact that I get to be at a Tupac show because it's a different environment. You know what I mean? Like, you could have that type of show going on, and I would just love to hear his music in that... Like, because a live setting is so much different than, like, Blasting Tupacalypse Now by yourself. Yeah. It's a different setting. Well, what my issue is, is how do you know it's actually, you know, mapped from Dio? Like, you couldn't have some, you know, like, five-foot-nothing dude walking around acting like Dio, and you just motion capture him and, like, superimpose Dio's face on him? Like, how do you know this is, like, legitimate Dio? You know what I mean? But are you... Because you have to understand, you're seeing an artist like Dio, yes. right? Dio isn't so much of a front man where he's going around the stage like Ozzy Osbourne. He ain't running, you know, like Freddie Mercury up there with the whole persona. You're getting to see Dio. So are you really... Are you really upset at the idea if you pay to well, see a hologram and you're, like, judging the hologram? Well, it like, ruins that's the, not... It ruins the credibility Dio-esque. of it. It ruins the credibility. It's like you're not seeing a Dio hologram. You're seeing some dude playing Dio. Exactly, exactly. You know what I mean? But I'm saying really what it comes down to, and this is why I said the idea of live music, is because when you're in that setting and you're hearing songs that you love, like off their LPs, when you're around a group of strangers and that bond you have, which is people you never met before, just over one common thing being the music that's being played. Yeah. That's a granted, again, why I would not spend a lot of money to go see something when in reality, like, what do you tell your kids? Like, I, like at least when I saw Fleetwood Mac with the original lineup, granted it was in 2014 and it wasn't like right after rumors dropped out, but I saw Fleetwood Mac's original lineup. You know yeah. I, mean? I saw Bob Dylan in the flesh. I saw Bad Company. Like, all these bands... Like, do I want to say, like, yo, I like I, I just think about when people would tell me stories of shows they saw, like, back in the day. Like, I always loved hearing that 80s, 70s and stuff. Do I yeah. want to say, like, yo, I saw Dio in 2019. How was it? Well, he was virtual. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't feel... I had to wear a pair of goggles to see yeah, him. Yeah, dude. Like, <laughs> they, yeah. I mean... I had to wear 3D glasses to see him. So, again, I, yeah, I mean, I think it is, they are going to charge more money than it should be. But, again, I don't totally discredit the whole hologram thing because it gives people that opportunity. It's a novelty. It I, is, yeah. How much would you pay to see... The doors with a Jim Morrison hologram with all the rest of the other doors. I would claim bankruptcy. Really? Yeah, yeah. And again, because you just said with all the other doors, yeah. so I know the music that's going to be produced, which is the instrumental aspect of it, a lot of the reason I listen to the doors comes from the instrumentals. Now, probably the other 50%, I will say. What about Nirvana? Coming. Nirvana, probably not. It's a whole well, How much would band. you pay for Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, and, and a Kurt Cobain hologram? hologram. Oh, dude, $15 lawn. No, I, I would pay like $50 for lawn. Really? 50? Yeah. General mission, I paid 50? probably fifty bucks. Huh. Yeah. For lawn. For like general mission, yeah. Like if it was <laughs> with Electric Factory, like I would just oh, pay okay. to go stand there. Yeah. Right, so uh the last thing with the news here, it's uh days after replacing the Rolling Stones at Jazz Fest, the headliners, uh they were uh they actually had to uh, cancel it because uh, Mick Jagger had heart surgery. Fleetwood Mac actually um, also canceled their gig at New Orleans Festival. Um, they also did they they've been touring around here. They actually uh postponed a date as well. Uh, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Stevie Nicks is actually dealing with the flu at this moment. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's just speedy recovery here. Yeah, absolutely. Feel that hologram out now. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's cool with Fleetwood Mac. Should the backup hologram? Um, she's not dead yet, but <laughs> yeah, dude. But hey, here's the thing, dude. I just saw Fleetwood Mac uh, March 22nd. I mean, obviously the lineup wasn't the original, but uh, they did act Mike Campbell as well as Neil uh, Finn. Neil Finn being from Crowded House. Don't dream it's over. Yeah, I, I'm not real familiar with Crowded House. Well, it's funny because even when they get mentioned, they, they're like the one-hit wonders. They were an Australian band. But that song, Don't Dream, um, It's Over, it's funny. That song, when they played it live, like I heard it, and that was another thing with Silver's on Pick. I was like, I know this song. Oh, it's this guy. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but I just saw him. I saw him March 22nd. It was with those two guys along with uh, Mick Fleetwood, Stevie Nicks, Christine, and John McVeigh. I also saw him back in 2014. With Isn't the original Lindsay lineup. Buckingham Lindsay Hunt, he's gone. Either. He's yeah. gone. Yeah. The show was good. 
It was good, but I'm telling you, the first time I saw him, it was profound. Like, the music was there. The, this, the quality of being there, it was just an excellent performance. So think about it. If you were going to be able to, let's say, create a festival, we'll say like five bands, okay? Four yeah. of them, and they could be living or dead. They can be bands that are together or not. So any band, any band off the spectrum. Af- off the spectrum. So we'll say this, five bands, but however, we're going to make it like this. Four of those bands are just complete, like, bands. Like, you know, for instance, if you pick Pantera, like, Dime's still alive, they're in their prime, okay. et cetera. Uh, but the fifth band, which will be your headliner, you compose a super group of living or dead artists to make one formation of a band. Okay, so what are we thinking? Like two guitar players, a bass player, drums? Yeah, and a keyboard for like a wild part if you want to do a keyboardist. Yeah, and then the vocalist, okay. obviously. But yeah, you got four bands. Um, structure them, obviously, how you would do your opening act, who would be the fourth band to technically headline, but then you have that fifth band to come out as your absolute super group. Okay. So how do you guys want to do this? You want to go around? Yeah, we'll, we'll start with Bill. And then we'll go, go around. Back, yeah, we'll just go and then we'll like while yeah, ones. then we'll discuss in it. Like yeah, give you the lineup. You know what I mean? All right. You so give, you know, like him discuss his after he gives his lineup and then so on and so forth. Explain why you picked the bands, the obvious order that you're putting them in, and then your supergroup, obviously. All right. So uh, all right, let's set the stage here. You're standing in you know an open field like yeah. a Woodstock type setup because mm-hmm. my festival is badass. It's all standing. <laughs> it's standing. <laughs> it's area, it, right? My, my festival is absolutely insane. All right, so you get there, you find your spot in the lawn, you're looking at this empty stage, it's dark. Let's say this, though. You bought the tickets. Mm-hmm. When you bought the tickets, they didn't even show you a lineup. Okay. They literally sold you tickets. They were $250, but they promised you you're not going to want to miss this. Okay. That's it. You don't even know who you're going to see. They said it's going to be five acts. $250, take it or leave it, and you took a gamble. So now, boom, you're at the festival, you're waiting, that first artist is going to come on. All right, you're looking at the stage, and all of a sudden, boom, lights come on, and then you hear, ah, dun, 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 dun. Alice in Chains opens. Then from Alice in Chains, you're going to hit Foo Fighters, okay? And I'm talking Foo Fighters from the early 2000s, like when they're like no bullshit, like Foo Fighters. After Foo Fighters, you're going to witness the greatest concert you're ever going to see. Van Halen with both Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth. Both? That's your super group? No, no, no. No, That's that's not a super group. That's his act. No, 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 no. Listen. No. We're not doing no cross-era band. No, no. You're not seeing Black Sabbath with Theo and Ozzy. You guys settle on David Lee Roth. it would be cool if it was. Who cares, man? You guys settle on David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar. The fact okay. that they're, because they're not going to share the stage, first of all. No, they wouldn't. All right. So you would have Van Halen from circa 1984. Okay. They're touring on the 1984 album. They're in their prime. These songs just came out. Okay. You're going to hear all the good songs and none of the horse shit. All right. Then, after Van Halen exits the stage, you're going to have Metallica. Who's going to play? Metallica's headlining over fucking Van Halen. Well, Metallica's going to put on a badass set. Because I'm talking Metallica from Black Album era. Metallica's going to play a blistering two and a half hour set. Blistering two and a half hours. Blistering two and a half hours. They're probably going to end with, uh, I mean, if it were me personally, and Mm. I got to choose a set list, it would end with Blackened. Like, I just think that would be wow. the ultimate ending song. That's like the ultimate opening track. No, it would open with And Justice for All. Wow. Dude, you think of okay. the... Or yeah, that or, you went I, so detailed into this for set lists and shit. Listen, dude. Listen, I've been dreaming go. of this. I've been dreaming of this, like, this, yeah, the this concert diamond, forever. He, he's, yeah, he's this is Bill right Stock we're talking about. Amygdala, dude. He's just coming all out with all these this hopes is, and dreams. This is Bill Stock. Yeah. This is what's going to happen if I hit the lottery. Okay. All right. So then well, you're gonna dig up like Lane Staley. <laughs> this is what's gonna happen when you hit the lottery. Time machine. Yeah. yeah oh, time, time machine. machine. Oh yeah. We yeah. call Doc Brown, dude. Yeah. All right. So after after Rhodes. blackened, you know, the stage goes dark, and then uh, you see a beam of light that comes down, and who's standing there is the front man. So this is your super group, right? This is a super group. Okay. Beam of light comes down on this dark stage. Lane Staley. Then. Yeah, Lane Staley. He's standing at the microphone waiting for the other members to come up. Mm-hmm. On your left, you have Jerry Cantrell that rolls up. To your right, you have Stevie Ray Vaughan. At this point, you're wondering what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. Light shines off in the back. You have Rick Wakeman from, yes, the keyboard player. Yes. Okay. Then, you know, behind or in front of him, you have Michael Anthony from Van Halen. 
and hmm. then the light shines in the background, and you have arguably one of the greatest drummers of all time, Mike Portnoy. Hmm. And you're sitting there wondering what this band is. They start playing, and you realize that it's a rock blues band with like an influence of metal, and it's the best shit you've ever heard in your life. Okay, that is my ideal concert. Okay, okay, I'll take it. Yeah. Connor, we got. All right. So the opening group is going to be the Clash in 1980, just after the release of Sandinista. They're going to play the self-titled. They're going to play. Give them enough rope. They're going to play the shit off Black Market Clash. Boss in the Supermarket. At, yeah, London Calling. Oh, yeah. And then they're going to play Sandinista. And they're not going to play nothing off Combat Rock or Cut the Crap. And it's going to fucking No rule. Rock the Cash Bar, dude. And then after the Clash, <laughs> we're going to kick it up a notch. Fucking Rage Against the Machine, Evil Empire Tour. Ooh. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And then following Rage... We really kick it up a notch. Nirvana. Fucking Kurt Cobain enters the stage. What era of Nirvana? Actually, I didn't even think about that. See, I don't know. Like, If I had to choose when I would have seen him, it probably would have been on the In Utero tour just because they, they, would have pulled, had, all they the had the biggest set and shit. Yeah, yeah but um, they sounded better on the Nevermind tour. So fuck it. I'll take him on the Nevermind tour, honestly, actually. Okay. okay. And then uh, after Nirvana, you kick it up a notch in fame and bigness for the for the non super surprise headliner, uh, Neil Young, Crazy Horse. They're oh. gonna they're gonna play for like six hours. <laughs> yeah, better bring your chairs. Mm-hmm. And then if anyone's still awake, my super group is gonna be Jimi Hendrix on guitar and vocals, John Pichiante from the Red Hot Chili Peppers on guitar and backup vocals. Tim Comerford is going to return to the stage from Rage Against the Machines performance and play bass for them. And then I have an oddball drummer, Dave Abraziz from Pearl Jam. He played on Versus, the 10 Tour, the Versus album, and then Vitology or part of Vitology. I'm, I'm, I forget. But um, That sounds like a pretty good band. He's a great drummer. like Very groovy. If I, if I had to pick a Pearl Jam drummer... I love Matt Cameron. Yeah, Matt I, Cameron was yeah. Yeah, he's really, really good. He's insanely good, and he probably even is better than Dave Abraziz. But for Pearl, he's better for Soundgarden. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll take Dave Abraziz actually on 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 Pearl Jam. Okay. Now, what what kind of uh, what kind of music is it? Like what what like what genre would you say this band would be? Jimmy dominated, okay. but with like a more modern. Uh, more modern sound slightly okay. like that's where you got like Tim Comerford and uh, yeah. Dave Abrazee's for to like modern up the rhythms and the grooves it, yeah it would be a very very groovy band yeah, yeah. extremely groovy like, that sounds good yeah if only yeah what do you got Steve so same aesthetics you know you're just standing there you just spent $250 on a ticket you have no clue what's about to happen then you're sitting there and it gets real dark you know, the sun's still kind of up. You know, it's like getting a little late. And all of a sudden you hear just that scratching guitar and your lead act comes on being the Jimi Hendrix experience. We're talking 1968. Okay. okay. That's your first act. Jimi Hendrix experience. Voodoo Child starts it off. And that's just how oh, it goes. Oh, that's awesome. So you get an opportunity they to see my festival. Now he's at your show. Oh, yeah. He's going right <laughs> back to back. But he's bringing the experience, though. You know? Yeah, yeah. He's, 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 he's not with that group. super group. He yeah. wants to go back to the experience. All right. So then you have that good jam session because, you know, Jimi Hendrix gives like those both vibes, the calming, like the, you know, psychedelic vibes. So to keep with that pace, your second act is Pink Floyd, Animals Era. Excellent. Yeah, Animals Era. I mean, you're going to, but see, here's the thing about Jimmy Pink Hendrix Floyd, though. Lose his shit. It, yeah, oh, yeah. But it's really dangerous because with Pink Floyd, they're not really so much a live act where you're going to hear a huge compilation of different songs or different albums. They really yeah. pour for the album. They're going to dive into that so, album. So, yeah. So that's why I'm going to limit the idea because you're not going to focus so much on Pink Floyd because you still have three more other acts to follow. So, this is going to be Animals Era of Pink Floyd. So, you're going to get that real trippy, slow down the vibe. And then all of a sudden, everything gets different. You have your little break. You're going to get your beer, whatever. The acid's kicking in. And next thing you know, Nirvana comes out in utero era, though. So you get this real raw, edgy, new Nirvana coming out. I mean, you're hearing Milk It. You're hearing Tourette's. You're hearing radio-friendly unit shifter. They're going back to the Nevermind. However, it's going to start with Blue. Okay. That's going to be hmm. the opening track. Then you're, I, they, yeah. That was a common opener it's for them. It's such a good opener. Yeah. Just like when you were talking about, um, you know, with... Uh, 
Injustice Al- Al- for All. No, what you're talking about Alice in oh, Chains come out. Yeah, yeah. dude. Uh, like, Damn That River. That's a great song to come out well, with. Well, when dude. I've seen Alice in Chains, dude, they've opened up with two different songs. One was Them Bones. Yeah. The other one was Bleed the Freaks. Yeah, Bleed the Freaks really good, freak. too. Yeah. So then your fourth act comes out, and this is just going to be essentially just an opportunity for a jam session because their closing song is going to be Moby Dick and the How Many More Times being Led Zeppelin. That's your fourth act, and we're talking like... How do you go up from there? Wait, it was Jimmy, Pink Floyd, Nirvana, Nirvana. and then Led Zeppelin. So you get this whole different type of pace of music, and it's just like all over the place with the ups and downs, right? Then your fourth act comes on, being Led Zeppelin. They close out, like I said, Moby Dick, just a huge drum session Mm -hmm. by John Bonham leading into how many more times that lasts like 16 minutes. And then you think it's over. But then the light shines. And I'm going to go backwards with this one. The light shines on the drummer first, just kicking it up, being Keith Moon from The Who. Okay. Wow. That's how he's just going to start coming in real quiet, but he's going to build up because, you know, Keith Moon gets really loud. Then all of a sudden to go with the drums, next thing you know, the bass starts kicking and it's Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath. Oh, shit. Mm. Then the both guitarists walk on the They'll stage. They'll have fun together. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Then the both guitarists walk in. And you know him from Eric and the Dominoes last time they were able to perform together like that, being Eric Clapton and Dwayne Allman. They come out, you know, just chugging guitars with the bass and the drums. That's cool. And then all of a sudden the keys just start coming out real quietly <laughs> as well. And who's that? Oh, that's Elton John over there. Oh, shit. Which now you got <laughs> on the stage, you got Elton John, Dwayne Allman, Eric Clapton, Geezer Butler, and Keith Moon. And all of a sudden you just hear this like raspy, just drunken style vocals and coming out in his leather pants and puffy shirt is Jim Morrison. <laughs> and they just jam for... Until everyone's like passed out, pretty much. Now, what type okay. of music would that so be? So it's gonna be like a bluesy esque type thing, okay. you know, like backdoor man, like Jim Morrison style, yeah. like yeah, that. Yeah. Really, just like it's just like Road jamming, it's just jamming around. Yeah. But then you're also gonna get the technicality with Keith Moon being able to play like heavy rock, mm-hmm. and you also got Elton John that can keep up with that fast pace style, and then Geezer Butler can pretty much fit any type of like bluesy because like Black Sabbath had that vibe. Now, would you use Elton John and Eric Clapton as background vocals? Absolutely. Too? Yeah, yeah. I would actually probably feature both of them to do their own songs on the sides. As that would well. be cool. Yeah, like you could give like just a hone in where it's just Eric Clapton and Elton John doing their own vocal style, and you have Jim Morrison like in the back. Like maybe they can cover Beth know. by Kiss. All right, well, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, the these three festivals would be pretty cool, dude. I, and that's what I'm saying. Like if I spent two hundred and fifty dollars blindly, and that's what I saw, I would feel like I ripped them off. Oh, my God. I mean, you think about all the artists you just saw, because even everybody that I named, like, I know you put some members from your bands in your super group. Yeah. But even so, like, you figure the bands I picked, the bands he picked. Think about each musician you're seeing. I mean, just Led Zeppelin as a whole, the whole band, you're seeing so many great musicians in their prime right there. Get to see Staley in his prime. Yeah, dude. So Led Zeppelin era for you, just to clarify, that was like Led Zeppelin 2? No, absolutely not. No? Probably right before 4. Yeah, I love Led Zeppelin 3. Okay. I even like four, too. But between yeah. one, two, and three, you can make a solid 14-track set list between those three albums. Yeah. I mean, even House of the Holy, Physical Graffiti. I mean, there's so many good songs that you're missing out on. Yeah, if I was going to pick a Led Zeppelin tour, I'd probably pick Physical Graffiti, honestly. Yeah, like they went that far. But I want them like at their raw edgiestness. Like, cause, like, like yeah. two, two was so good. And even one, like Communication Breakdown, that's just such a, like, a different song than what most people are accustomed to with Led Zeppelin. Yep. I mean, but then you can even, like, Babe, I'm going to leave you. You can add in there. I mean, the immigrant song is what they would probably come out with. That would be Just cool. That screaming. That would be an awesome <laughs> opening. <laughs> Let us know in the comments what you guys think. What festival would you like to go see? What would be your ideal festival? And what would be your super group? We would like to hear. Email us. Tell us. Write to us. Call us. We don't care. We want to hear. All right. So last week, we gave a suggestion to check out the Netflix biopic the dirt and for those of you that are just tuning in the dirt is a biopic of you know one of the world's most notorious bands motley crew all three of us here have watched the movie and uh we're gonna let you guys know what we what we think what just did like you think, the band, It was pretty bad. So, yeah, Connor, <laughs> you were the one that hadn't seen it last week between the three of us. So I, I want to, because your review I haven't even heard. Like, like this I, is fresh. We've already discussed it. So I want to hear your input on it because I haven't even heard it yet. I don't know what you thought. It, it just felt like a made-for-TV movie. Like, there was like a couple times where they broke the fourth wall, but then like, 
it wasn't like that the whole movie and like yeah. it was like aside from like me not even being interested in Motley Crue that much like uh it didn't bring me in much like there was there was nothing the only thing that really hit me in that movie was I never knew Vince Neil's daughter died when she was four yeah. like yeah I pretty didn't know much that it wasn't during like necessarily the heyday of Molly Crew, but it was shortly yeah it was like right after he left in like yeah. 1990 or whatever and uh I was like I because I did like Molly Crew when I was a kid and that's it all of us I yeah I always wondered like why the hell did they break up like they're all still alive like mm-hmm. you know what yada 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 and that was kind of for me like okay so I, I definitely get why you know Vince Neil and uh, yeah I never knew Vince Neil killed that dude in a car accident uh, the, yeah. the drummer from Henley Rocks yeah the song was alright like, uh, with the dirt song yeah the song with uh, Machine Gun Kelly that yeah. song was alright I like Machine Gun Kelly's part the best yeah but really I did think he did a decent job. I thought he was like the Tommy only Lee. good actor. In no, that I'm movie. actually not gonna lie. Uh, yeah, Iwan Rion, or however you pronounce his name. Uh, you guys don't watch Game of Thrones. He played, um, he played Bolton sick. Ramsey in Game of Thrones. He was the guy who played Mick Mars. Ah, okay, dude, he was he was perfect because I thought he was good. In that. Yeah, I thought yeah. he was very good, but he obviously wasn't the standout actor. But he played his role particularly well in that he wasn't like beat for all the bullshit. Yeah, I like, wouldn't. Like, I wouldn't criticize the acting in the movie. Yeah, no, no, no one in the movie really like didn't hit the spot on the characters. Well, the dude that played Nikki Six, I feel like didn't really get it. Yeah, well, he wasn't badass enough, kind no, of. And he was he a little was. bit too much of a baby. Though, yeah, something. he was like a pretty boy. Yeah. This is the thing about Motley Crue. I mean, you have to understand, like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, and I know, I don't know if you guys have read it, The Heroin Diaries. Nah. Uh, so Nikki Six breaks down a specific year. I mean, he does an entire year. It's literally him doing a journal every day for that entire year. And obviously, it's more personally him. And getting aside from, like, the drug addiction of the band itself, like, Nikki Six, this was his brainchild. I mean, he wrote pretty much everything yeah. for this band. Yep. They didn't really hone in on that of how much he actually cared about this band. And the thing about the movie, like, again, the acting was there, I mean, to an extent. I mean, I was actually really impressed with MGK because I like MGK and seeing him in an acting role like that. He actually was an SLC Punk too, by the way. The second oh, SLC punk. I, oh wow! He had a minor role in that movie, but again, to see him in that prominent role of playing a figure that you figure all these '80s hair metal freaks like enjoy to see MGK come in and play that role. MGK has credibility, and then he's playing a role where he's got to perform. And I think he did well. But here's the thing about Motley Crue: I'm not a huge fan of Motley Crue, but I am a huge fan of the idea of seeing these bands that you know they get bad credit later on, but you don't get to see what they did to get where they were at. Yeah, you know, then that's important, and to understand of how much Nikki Six put into that band. I mean, if you read Heroin Diaries, even when he was like coked up out of his mind, like shooting dope on his own, he was still writing bass parts. Like he was still about the band, and he never lost sight of that. Because think about it, even Anthony Kiedis when he messed up doing his thing, he got kicked out of the band at one point. Yeah, a couple times actually. If you think later down the line, because well, he yeah he wouldn't show up, and when yeah, he did show up, he but, wasn't good. Yeah, Nikki Six has always been there. I mean, mentally maybe not so, but I think the movie itself was like too rushed. Like, there wasn't a direction. Yes. Like, we go into talking about biopics, like, you know, especially music-wise. Think of Bohemian Rhapsody. It was very basic to the idea where, you know, obviously they wanted to show the formation of the band, but they didn't have, you know, Freddie obviously as a small child, but they showed how he got in and made the band Queen. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, it was leading up to Live Aid. Like, it was that it- was... It was interesting. I Rolling Stone, I saw this thing, actually gave the Derek credit for being, like, more factually accurate than... Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. Which is interesting because, I mean, I, I will agree with that if that is the case. I mean, obviously, I do believe that because I know there was a lot of things that did come out that obviously weren't so much true. But for the sake of seeing a movie, you think of what this does. Like, I've seen memes where it's like a thrash dude, like, you know, wearing like an onslaught shirt and it says like thrashers before the dirt and the <laughs> thrashers after the dirt. And then the dude's got like teased hair and he's wearing like a scorpion sleeveless. You know, and it's just, you see what this does. It creates that frenzy where all of a sudden there's some people that probably never even really listened to Motley Crue, but knew of them and then saw this movie. And next thing you know, they got, you know, Dr. Feelgood on vinyl. Yeah. You know, and again, the acting was there, but I think for my sake, like I wouldn't. I didn't like it so much because I thought it was too rushed. The story yeah. was all over the part yep. place, especially the Ozzy scene. The Ozzy scene was very quick. Yeah. I mean, they made Ozzy yeah. like if you don't know who Ozzy Osbourne is, they didn't even really emphasize that to the idea. They just of, like, made him a lunatic. Oh yeah, which is cool because he kind of was at that point in time yeah. in his life. But still, you didn't give him like it the felt like real a made TV movie yeah. that had higher like production costs. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, out of a one to ten scale, 
what what would you rank this movie, Steve? So I'm actually gonna say a four. And a I'm not four? I'm not yeah. Oh, out of ten. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. saying a four out of ten. I'm not saying a four out of ten, like yo, this is a crap movie. I'm saying a four out of ten because it's it's one of those things where it's it's on Netflix. So I mean obviously you have Netflix, it's streamable. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there with a Netflix account that you know because I don't even pay for my own Netflix. My fiance <laughs> pays for it, so whatever. But yeah, I mean it's free, it's worth a watch, it's enjoyable. I mean, just it was almost like Rockstar. Like, yeah. it was almost like I knew I was watching a movie about Molly Crew, but I felt like I was just watching a movie about a rock and roll band. Yeah. You know, like, it was more fun to watch, but if you're going to watch it as a fan of, like, biopic movies and you really want to see a good storyline, you're not going to get that. It's just going to be all over the place, a lot yep. of drugs, you know, dudes getting his dick sucked under the table, and he's, you know what I mean? It's just basic stuff. I mean, you see a couple good uh, artists in it, you know, and, like, again, the acting was pretty good. If you like MGK, I mean, it's a good opportunity for you to see him in a good role. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I give it a four just because of the storyline. It just it was too all over the place, and I really want depth, substance. I'd uh, I'd say I give it a five, not the one up year or nothing. But I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that is one upping, but whatever. Dude. I I don't know. Dude, I I feel like it wasn't horrible. I feel like it could have been better. But all in all, with the accuracies of the movie, and. You know the couple good acting parts. I feel I feel five stars, five out of ten stars, whatever, five points. I feel like that. I feel like that's reasonable. I feel like that's not too much or too little. I feel like that's right on par on where it should be. How do you feel? I'm gonna do three out of ten. Wow. Yeah, because it wasn't that funny, even though it was supposed to be. Like there really wasn't like laugh yeah, it's out loud. Actually, under comedy, if you go and search genre on comedy, yeah. the dirt pops up. Yeah, they, oh, wow. they would have been better off doing like a more like biting take on Motley Crue, where like it was it was like sad and like hard. Like yeah, it was a tough tale. Like they make a big joke of it apparently, and it's like yeah, it's funny because you made it out and you made a bunch of money, but like you know you make you kind of I don't know you make people think it's like a big joke. It doesn't seem like that's how it really was at times. No. And, yeah, so like I didn't like what how they went about the movie making like comedy ish comedic and uh I didn't like the the plot was bad. Like they jumped around, they they skipped stuff from what I read, like major stuff. They got a bunch of they got like a fair amount of details wrong, like something with uh Heather Locklear and Pamela Anderson, I think they got wrong. Um yeah, so it was like, it's it's no Ray, I'll say that. Well, yeah. it's actually kind of oh, funny because yeah. it seems like we're on par with everyone else. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a forty-one percent. Uh, Metacritic gave the movie thirty-nine out of a hundred, so that's basically forty or four. Um, David Fear of Rolling Stone gave the film a rating two out of five stars. And he said, this is rock, this is rock bad boy lore as a rocking boar. An endless parade of recreated after-party ecstasy and emptiness that robs the dirt of its vicarious thrill it had on the page. The sense that you shouldn't be having this much of a second-hand high reading about musicians acting like horrible people, but still seeming living the dream heroic. Yeah, it's funny too because you give it a five. I give it a four. What do you give it a three? I mean, that's our average rating right there is four. So, I mean, we're was right on par with the idea of, like, where this should be at. But here's the thing, dude. You also see here that um, with Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, obviously they do critic, and then they also do fan approval, audience. Audience mm-hmm. approval right now is 85%. Well, I think that's just because it's Motley Crue. That's what Google, I'm saying. It's 95. That's wow. what I'm saying. That, But that bothers me because, again, you, you get critics who are, like, too harsh, and then you get fans that, like, just... You know they'll die hard. They just like just it because they at like anything. Yeah, you know what I mean. Just out of principle. Okay. Like I'm telling you right now, if like my favorite band put out a bad song, I wouldn't be afraid to admit it. Like, yo, that song sucks. I would not just like a song because of a band. I wouldn't just like a movie because of who it's about. That's all right. Probably, yeah. Well, all right. Let's see how you feel about this one. Uh, Brian Teller Tellerico from Roger Ebert. Ebert. Gave the film one out of four stars, saying you could listen to Dr. Feelgood two full times during the runtime of The Dirt 
and learn just about as much about the band as you do in this R-rated Wikipedia article of a movie, and you'd have way more fun. I love that analogy that it's like an R-rated Wikipedia article of a movie. That's perfect. Yeah, the analogy I really liked was the one that compared it to like a 90s VH1 piece on the band. But yeah. it was like that, but uh, it's, it's yeah. Owen Gleiberman from Variety. Yeah. Um, it's like a, it is. It's like a VH1 biopic of them, but it doesn't have them in it. And it's well, I feel like they're behind <laughs> the music was better. Yeah, I yeah. would rather watch an hour and fifty minute long behind the music, where it's just them getting interviewed or whatever, than this movie. So on the discussion, real quick, before we move on from this and the discussion of biopic films. So, Bill, I'm going to ask you first. If you could have them make a movie, and it would be true in detail, as well as the best actors possible for it, it would be really well done. Um, if you could pick a biopic movie about any band, living or dead, obviously, okay. you know, who would it be about? And it's going to be actors portraying them. It's not a documentary, so like any type of film. Okay. All right. Um, I feel like the Van Halen story would be boring. I feel like a Metallica movie would be pretty good. Yeah, I do agree. But I feel like in order to get like comedic value, sad points, mm -hmm. and just like overall like you know like a giant thing, would have to be an Alice in Chains movie. Like you think yeah. about like the last days yeah, of Lane Staley, super depressing. You know, like yeah. how the band was huge and then they yeah. dropped off after their self-titled release, and yeah. then they did Unplugged, and then Lane died. Yeah, like I think that that would be an incredible movie. Like six years later. Yeah. yeah. Well, you say the same thing with the sad and like happy and co comedic value. Metallica would have the same thing. You could have in the beginning stages when like Dave Mustaine used to fuck with Ron McGovney. Yeah. You know, and then you also have the build up of like, you know, how great they were getting. And, you know, you have the real like hard edge parts where he's getting kicked out of the band as well as the Cliff, Cliff Burton dying. Yep. Um, and the comedic things would be when Jason Newstead's getting like haze. Yeah, dude. And even like you could get into the, I mean, how far would you go really? But even the some kind of monster era where they're like, you know, just a bunch of prissy. babies. Yeah, man. I mean, but I feel like with a Metallica move, you'd have to end it like somewhere. There's so much. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. You'd have to end it probably like, like Seattle after in 86. Maybe Black Album. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Yeah. No, Black I get, I get thing, what But I feel saying, like. Yeah. The no, Black Album was their height of commercial yeah. success, and I feel like that would be a good ending to a movie. I guess you, dude. Like, here they are, happily yeah. ever after. So you say you're saying Alice in Chains, though? Yeah, Alice, Alice in Chains. Connor, what would you do? I was just thinking about that, and I, I settled on either Talking Heads or Rage Against the Machine. Dude, Talking Heads would I, be awesome. Yeah, Rage Against the Machine. I felt like Ra they maybe yeah. didn't have enough. Uh, it would be a show. Well, it's funny to think like. You know, Tom Morello like went to college for like political science. I mean, he At was Harvard. Huge, yeah, dude. Yeah. I mean, so that he would went to be school of Barack Obama. Yeah, dude. Well, yeah. I mean, it would be a crazy movie, but I don't know. It it wouldn't be a normal music biopic, but um, like their personal stories might not like. I don't know. You don't know anything about their personal stories because they're pretty private. But um, yeah. Talking Heads would definitely be an interesting story because they came yeah. in with like punk and new wave and then hit the most mainstream success probably of any new wave band really, yeah. and then uh, started feuding and they don't really get along anymore. There's no hope for a Talking Heads reunion on the horizon. It has been that way since they broke up. Essentially, I think the only time they played was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in like 2004. I feel like that would be an interesting movie. Yeah, I agree. What do you uh what do you think, Steven? So I know there's a movie out, it's called Last Days, came out in two thousand five. It's like loosely based on Kurt Cobain's by Gus Van Zamp. Yeah. So remember me and you also discussed this, Connor, with the book Heavier Than Heaven. They were always yeah. discussing possibly making a movie about that. I think Nirvana as Like I'm going to Nirvana as a band. I mean, obviously you could do it the way Bohemian Rhapsody did it, sur surrounded by, you know, the artists themselves being Kurt Cobain in this sense. Yeah. And obviously include the band. But you could start at him at a younger age. You know, when he before he even got into Nirvana and like when they're just like playing covers at like like house parties and stuff, you know, yeah. before, you know, uh, Dave even joins the band and stuff and like leading up to his death, essentially, because that is a story there in a time scale movie wise. It's short enough time wise in the length of like what a career will be like Motley Crue's career is extensive in time. 
So when they have to limit it to a movie, it's difficult. Even Queen was pretty long. But like Kurt Cobain with Nirvana only having three studio lengths come out, you could show the progression quickly between Bleach, Nevermind, and Utero. And then also the same thing with Lane, like the depressing end before he yeah. actually died. Yeah, he wasn't even really messing around in bands or yeah. anything in high school. Like he pretty much started playing music when he was 18 yeah like seven like i mean he played guitar before that but like he pretty much just like watched other people play yeah. like hang around other bands practices and stuff yeah but you could also use too and really exploit the idea that when Nevermind hit you know the mainstream media like how much that sincerely changed music because people will say that and i don't think people really understand what that did to music Oh my god! In the it's, 90s, huge. it's unbelievable what Nirvana was able to accomplish in such a short period of time. It's just really, it's good. And it, like the thing about it is too. I mean, you could also explore, you know, like I was saying with, um, you know, obviously Courtney Love, like when she was dating like Billy Corgan, and you could like go all those little side stories, you know, <laughs> shit like that. And, you know, there's so many little like added characters you could put into that. Um, you could even, you know, show when like goo dropped and like you could even have like a small part where Kurt just wants to, you know, sell as much as goo and like little did he know after the Christmas season how much Nirvana like exploded after that, dude. Yeah. You know, and you show them playing like shows in the beginning, like you even see like the videos on YouTube of him fighting on stage and like the SNL and everything, mm -hmm. dude. And, and a lot of people think not to make this like a whole big Nirvana thing, yeah. but a lot of people think that they kind of blew up after he died and like they were mm -hmm. big mm -hmm. dude they were huge before he died yeah. you look at like the sales figures like nevermind was already like fucking six times platinum or some shit yeah. when in utero dropped like. but i think i think too i mean the grand thing about these movies going back to the dirt bohemian rhapsody even rocket man coming out about and john yeah i mean I'm this is a great opportunity even with like we mentioned with straight out of compton like this mm -hmm. is a great opportunity for people to see movies about artists that are slowly being forgotten with the sense of this new wave of different types of music hitting the scene exactly I mean, you go out and see bohemian rhapsody i mean how many queen fans i guarantee you there are new queen fans solely based oh after my seeing god they're movie. all over the place. i guarantee oh, you there yeah. are you know motley crew fans same with like NWA. I mean, how mm -hmm. many people probably watched that movie, never even heard the album straight out of Compton, but wanted to be relevant. So they're like, oh, I listened to that album before yeah, exactly. because of that movie. If Nirvana did the biopic shit, it would be crazy it would because be there's already so many people wearing the t-shirts yeah. that don't even know anything yeah. about it. Yeah, exactly. And it's a shame too because um, you have to understand like record sales don't get you know, credit as much anymore because people are able to use like Spotify, oh, Apple Music, yeah. and just stream music, even YouTube. I mean, so you're not able to see like the difference in record sales, but I guarantee right now, if the only way you were listening to music was purchasing an album, I guarantee record sales would be a little higher than normal for Motley Crue at this period. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they are even, with even the, in a with small the, scale with the scales we have yeah. in place. So I think uh, now would be time for obviously our personal suggestions of the week albums, okay. movies, whatever. Bill. My suggestion this week is to check out the album Disobey by Bad Wolves. I know I mentioned it earlier in this yeah, podcast. Thing, it's yeah. totally worth a listen. It's amazing. I'm telling you, these guys from New Jersey are nuts. The the cover of Zombies really good. They have another single out called No Masters, which is also an insanely good song. Remember When? That was a really good song. It. Do yourself a favor and check it out. It's a really, really, really good album. All right. Connor. Okay. My selection for this week is the Coos album, Party Music. Um, it's the it, If you haven't heard of him, it's Boots Riley, fronts the coup. He directed Sorry to Bother You. He was in a band with Tom Morello, Street Sweeper Social Club. Yep. Um, political activist. Great, great guy. Um, I actually saw him not too long ago in philly speaking um yeah um that album party music is great it it's kind of famous because it had a controversial 9-11 album cover like weeks before 9-11 and they had to like change it but uh it's a great album coup party music that's c-o-u-p nice uh so my recommendation um, I'm actually going to see this band May 24th. They're playing with Slayer, Behemoth, as well as Cannibal Corpse. The band is a Monomarth, oh. Viking metal. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to have a unique taste to be able to listen to these guys. But my recommendation, um, they're actually dropping an album May 3rd. Okay. So this is the interesting fact, because I know when I'm seeing them, I'm, they're probably going to play some of these songs, obviously, for the new album. But they do have one song that was released, as well as a music video. It's called Raven's Flight. 
Uh, give that song a listen. The album is called Berserker. It drops on May 3rd. So that's definitely, uh, you know, check that track out. I'm not a huge fan of the track itself, but that's usually how Monomarth is. Usually their most popular songs are not the ones I like, and I don't do that as like a indie type, you know, view. It's just that's sure how you don't, that you hipster. Yeah, you know what I mean? I just wear my Doc Martens because it's cool, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> uh, they never was, go bad. They never go bad. Lifetime guarantee from Mr. Martin himself before he was a doctor. All right, so uh, what's our group suggestion for this week? Connor. Control. Directed by Anton Corbin, and it's the Joy Division, Ian Curtis biopic. So it came out in maybe 2006 or 2007. Um, it's a great movie. It really is one of the best biopics ever made. Um, Anton Corbin's great. He's he's done a bunch of stuff. He um, directed the last music video from Nirvana, Heart Shaped Box. He, oh, wow. he did... The artwork from a Foo Fighters album. He's he's done a bunch of stuff. Yeah, Bill, you're the only one that never saw this, right? No, I have yeah, not seen this. To check out, man. So Neil Young and uh, Control are definitely on your list coming up. The videos for Depeche Mode. Yeah. Um, recently, Coldplay, Viva La Vida. Mm. Um, so yeah, he's pretty serious. Yeah, and going in with the idea of Joy Division, obviously they were like part of that post punk scene. Um, Ian Curtis, it's really focused around him as well as the band, but it's pretty much leading up until his death, uh, suicide, uh, actually right before they were about to tour in the United States, which is interesting because they got actually a huge notoriety, especially underground and then bigger because unknown pleasures. Um, if you even watch the movie 500 Days of Summer, I mean, you'll see, uh, what's his face, Jason Gordon-Levitt wearing the shirt at one point in time. It's like actually a shirt I see a lot of people That's wearing. probably what kicked this, kickstarted yeah, it. Yeah, dude, and it's like, that's another thing with like Banties. <laughs> We're not even going to get into that discussion. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that first album, Unknown Pleasures, and then Closer, and then obviously the single, Level Terrace Apart. Um, you know, all, there's a lot of great tracks by that band. But it's funny because, Connor, you showed me that movie, and before... Like, I had listened to him, and then you actually showed me the movie, and I found a new appreciation for that band because of that movie, and I was able to go back and listen to, like, really thoroughly listen to that band, and now I sincerely enjoy listening to Joy Division. Oh, one of the greatest bands of all time. I'm not going to go that far. I would. Okay. <laughs> I bet. All right, well, I guess that wraps it up for this week, guys. Um, once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support. We really appreciate this. Your support helps us listen like download subscribe comment whatever write to us talk to us we want to hear from you this is rage against the mainstream signing off i'm bill i'm steve i'm connor have a good night everyone thank you for listening